The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and in this episode, part two of my interview with Norman Holland. Now, we're going to talk about his writing, as well as there's a PhD dissertation I think a lot of people should read, and we talk about that and how that sort of comes into play. Also, we have some new toys coming out for AOTG.com, and we're going to be releasing them in about a week. So what I'm hoping to do is release them early for our podcast listeners. So you may get a short update in a week or so. Uh, Lauren and I just explaining how to use these new tools that we've created. I also want to mention, check out that post show. They've got lots of great interviews coming up. And if you have a chance, go to the iTunes store, give that post show, give the cutting room a thumbs up or a vote, comment on it. It helps generate movement in where we appear in people's searches. So we need that help to get up so other people can find us. All right. Now, enjoy my interview with Norman. I'm going to be back in a bit. I'm going to tell you about an event coming up with the editor of RoboCop. Can you tell us how you got into film? I went to school about a thousand billion years ago before they were much in the way of film schools. And I found my way after many majors to the theater department. Uh, so I was learning directing and acting and set scene design and that sort of stuff. And um, I'd always loved movies. And I convinced my professors to let me make movies instead of papers. So I kept doing that over the course of the three years I was really specializing in theater. And what happened was the the short version of the story is um, we got a phone call in the department that there was a Columbia University grad who was doing a project nearby and needed someone to PA on the set, you know, to hold the boom and to do stuff. And that was announced in uh, one of the classes I was taking, and I was the first to the phone afterwards. And so they brought me on to do the PA work. The next year when they came back to do it again, they just called me directly. And by then I knew I loved editing because that's where I could lose myself. And uh, when I graduated, I started working with these people doing PSAs and um, uh, a lot of set work and volunteered to work for nothing in the editing room with them. And eventually, a woman who they hired to be an editor on a PSA got hired onto the movie Lenny, uh, the Bob Fosse film. And she asked me, because I was working with her then, that moment in time when she got hired, and uh, she asked me if I wanted to come on as an apprentice sound editor. So I thought for like about, oh, I don't know, a nanosecond, and mm-hmm. said yes. And so... That's how it was. It was an easier time getting in then because there was a path. You started as an apprentice, you moved to an assistant, you moved to an editor. There were uh, sound was quite separate from picture, and so you moved up a chain. And in New York, the business was small enough, so you got to know pretty much everybody in that side of the business. So, um, yeah, I just kind of kept plodding forward. 
Well, a lot, a lot of your early work was in sound, in the sound side. Mm-hmm. So how did you transition from the sound to editing? Well, let's see. I guess, let me just kind of tweak what you said a little bit. Um, a lot of my early work was in music editing. Mm-hmm. So after moving up through sound, assistant sound editing, assistant picture editing, uh, then some really, really low-budged, editing a shorts or no budge kind of thing in order to keep making money. What I was doing was I was a music editor because I was always comfortable doing that. Um, I like music. Uh, and that puts you in touch with a lot of people. I sat with directors, sat with producers. And so it gave me a lot of access. I was on set for movies like Hair and Cotton Club and films like that because we did a lot of music playback. So... Uh, I got super comfortable around the sound people, around first ADs, the production managers. So I got to be known doing that. And then literally my big thing was to say, I want to cut and make people aware that I wanted to start cutting. And because I developed enough good relationships with people, eventually, eventually someone was ready to take a chance. And after that's all been downhill. It was really pulling the skills together and pulling the personal skills so people knew they could trust me. People knew that I was going to contribute and be valuable in the editing room. And so eventually I got to the point where that uh, I had done a few small things and people went, oh, and on top of all that, he can edit. How great is that? So when I put myself out as an editor... For some people, it was an easy next step. Mm-hmm. Now, one of your early uh, apprentice jobs was with uh, Alan Heim, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Now, that I, was my first, yeah. <laughs> my first couple of jobs with Alan, yeah. So can you, because he's, in, in my opinion, he's a legend, He's uh, and he's some of, done some amazing work. Yeah, that's absolutely right. What did you learn from him when you were apprenticing that you still use to this day? Ah, uh, well, let's see, there's, back when I was doing it, we were editing on film, and uh, this is going to sound totally geeky, but uh, one of the things that assistant editors always would do is play little games with ourselves so that um, the editor, we'd be standing right by a big trim with all of the pieces of film hanging from it for the scene that Alan was working on, and I would try and guess ahead of time, okay, he's going to ask for this shot here. And I was wrong as often as I was right. And that taught me how his mind thought in terms of shaping the scene. Another thing that I definitely learned from Alan had to do with the way that you talk with producers and uh, directors. So I learned a lot about the politics of the editing room by standing there and, and watching him negotiate his point of view. Uh, while still being a good collaborator. So I think that's that both of those things were important. And then we had to splice all the takes back together again, all the little pieces that were not in the film had to be spliced back together again. So once again, you take a look and you go, oh, they took three frames off of that cut. Let me see why. You know, it's like uh, doing change notes on any of the NLEs now. You can sort of see how things change. So... I was able to make use of that knowledge to say, what did they improve here? Uh, what are they experimenting with? 
And Alan was also the kind of editor who would talk about things. You know, you'd come, you'd be standing there and you'd go, what about this cut? You like this one? Uh, so you could ask questions then and you could really get involved in your head in the process. Now, I don't know that I ever helped him with anything, but he certainly helped me to examine uh, what a cut can do and why that could cut in one, one frame versus two frames later. Now, to jump to your to your written work for the Lean Forward moment, what was it that sort of drew you to writing this this book? I had developed a way of talking about editing for the very first class I ever did at USC when I came in uh, as a part-time. So I did this one class called Intermediate Editing for grad students. I did uh, every week. I would come in one evening with teacher. And I had to figure out, how do I think like an editor? And what I realized was in all of the different things that I've cut, there's a consistency in that I kind of look at the overall story that's being told. I look at the scene that I'm about to cut or the part of whatever it is, a commercial or whatever, the area that I'm cutting, and say, how does it contribute to that scene? And there's a number of very specific ways that I do it subconsciously maybe, but I know I'm doing that. And so that's what I started to describe to my class. It, at its core, super quickly, mm-hmm. is just audiences react to change. They react most to change, whether it's the cut from a wide to a close-up, whether it's a change of pace of editing, whether it's the introduction of a piece of music where none existed before. Mm-hmm. People react to change. So uh, you combine that idea with the idea that, uh, well, at this particular moment in the scene, if I go from wide to tight, then um, the audience is going to pay just a little bit more attention at that exact moment. And inside, they're going to lean forward and pay a little bit more attention to what's happening on screen there. You're going to heighten it for them. You're going to say, pay attention, guys. Mm -hmm. And I call those the lean forward moments. And at those lean forward moments is the chance to let the audience in on your story on a deeper level. Uh, So that became the method that I would use to help people look at a mass of footage and say, how do I cut this scene? So what ended up happening was I started teaching that as an adjunct, and a couple of years later, I started to get emails or letters from people who had taken the course saying, you know what, I found this really useful when I was directing something. Or... Well, I never thought about that outside of editing until I had to talk with the composer. Or when I'm now as a DP, I'm a professional DP, and I find myself going back to those concepts to figure out when and what kind of camera moves to do and how to frame things. So I was approached to uh, write a book, and I thought that's what I want to talk about. So the book is not just about editing. The book takes every craft, from directing, acting, producing, sound design, music, editing, uh, production design, through all of them, all the way to the end of the film, and looks at it from this idea of that lean forward moment and how analyzing the scene that way can help. So it came from people coming to me saying, well, this is more useful than you thought it was going to (laughs) be. And going, oh, okay, let me see what that's about. Like you said in the the lean forward moment, you sort of you look at how you can influence the audience emotionally or engage them emotionally. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, and I can remember when I was learning to edit 
watching films over and over and over again and ruining a lot of VHS tapes, uh, trying to figure out why uh, cut engaged me or why what the cut meant or how it would affect the audience. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, at what point in your career or what point in your life did you realize that the editing uh, or the editor had the power to affect the audience? Or do you remember that moment? <laughs> well, I remember a couple of moments, actually. For a number of years when I was in high school, I was an usher in a movie theater. Uh, not that they do that very much anymore, but that um, uh, I'm old. What can I say? I'm old. So I would sit there and watch the same movie, the same scenes, uh, depending upon how many weeks we had the movie. It could be like three dozen times. I watched the same scenes. And so I became hyper aware of the editing and, and, and of shaping and of details of other kinds of things. And I'll say I just kind of put that in the back of my head. But where I, the next step for me was when I realized when I was at school and doing these films that I would go in at like 10 a.m. in the morning to start editing something. And a couple hours later, I would come out and be pitch black outside because it obviously wasn't a couple of hours. I'd spent the entire day without realizing it in the editing room. So I realized I liked manipulating things. And then the next step after that for me was standing at the side of people like Alan Heim or Evan Lottman uh, or Lindsay Klingman and watching them make choices and feeling how that made me feel differently inside, um, depending on the choices. So, and I learn that today still when my students ask questions or, or show me something and say, well, what about this? Why isn't this working? Or how about this? And I'll go, damn, that's good. And I wouldn't even thought to do that. So I'm continually learning that. It's been a process since holding that flashlight in the movie theater uh, X number of years ago, where X is an unknown. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I'm not sh- too sure if I'm pronouncing his first name right, uh, Ron Carmi? Ron Carmi. Yeah. Ron Carmi, right, yes. Yeah. Now, he did the dissertation, uh, Attention, Movie Cuts, and Natural Vision. I was wondering if you could sort of explain that to the audience a bit, or like what the dissertation was, but also what do you think right. its uh, impact might have on you as a as an editor or other editors listening? Wow. Awesome. You did do your research there, Gordon. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rand was a student at USC, uh, a a PhD student in the School of Neuroscience. His thesis proposal was to take a look at how the brain works across cuts. Now, they don't call them cuts, and they call it the saccades, so that how the brain reacts when going from one visual image to another. Uh, and he had set up a whole testing system where, where he used random pieces of footage and made cuts randomly. And then he used eye tracking technology so he could actually see where the exact place on frame, on, on the frame where the audience was looking. And he came to me, since I run the edit department at SC, uh, came to me and asked uh, if I would help out with it. And I said, sure, I'll help you. But let me tell you, I don't know about neuroscience. But from an editor, I can tell you that the things that we use to attract an audience's eye, to manipulate the eye across the frame, are, and I said a few, so I said uh, we use movement to help the audience bridge a cut. We use color. We use size. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, if we want the audience 
to be in a certain place on the B side of a cut, we make sure that either it's the biggest thing in the frame or it's a different color than what surrounds it or it's moving mm-hmm. a lot and yeah, I can go there. And he took notes and said, this is great. So uh, he spent a couple of years working on all of this. And uh, when we finally sat down at his oral defense of the dissertation, and he said, okay, so this is what I figured out. Mm-hmm. And he said, in this chapter, because there was one chapter which really was about the editing process. In this chapter, we sort of figured out that the audience's eye and their brain goes to things that moves and goes to things that are uh, bigger in frame or those are things that are a prominent color in frame. So it's pretty much what we as editors knew for years, just now confirmed through some pretty rigorous scientific testing. Mm -hmm. So I now show in a number of my classes some eye-tracking studies where we see using what's called the bee swarm technique. So they're little dots on screen. And you may have seen some of this, actually, because some of them are available out on the web. There's one that follows a scene from There Will Be Blood. There's another one I use that's from a commercial for breath mint uh, in Europe. And there are a number of these. So I screen some of that, and you can see how quickly the eye moves across a cut and what they focus on. Oh, it's the eyes here, or in this case, this person is moving, so it's the movement in general. So that just makes us a little bit more aware of things that I think in the old days we learned simply by standing at the side of editors and looking at how they made cuts. And now that the apprentice system is sort of dead, we can't do that anymore. And we at schools like USC are the, um, the new apprentice systems. Mm-hmm. So, so Rand's study opened me up to the idea that there's real reasons why we can manipulate people's emotions and eyes. Um, and that's part of what we can do as editors. So that's why I teach it. That was part two of my interview with Norman Holland. Part three, we're going to talk about his work on Heathers. In the meantime, there's an event coming up, February 21st. I'm going to be hosting a one-on-one interview live for the Toronto Avid Editors. And that's going to be with Daniel Resende. Daniel has cut such works as City of God, The Tree of Life, The Motorcycle Diaries, and is currently cutting Robocop in my city. So, we're going to sit down with him, and we're going to talk about everything. And we're hopefully going to try and get a few little secrets out of about Robocop. I'm going to record that and post some of it on the podcast, but I'd encourage you all to come check it out. You can go to avidtorontoeditors.ca to get all the information. With all that said, join me next week for part three of my interview with Norman, where we talk about Heathers. I'd like to thank Norman for joining me. I'd like to thank Lauren for producing this episode. I'm Gordon Raquel. Thanks for listening.